Jesus is one of the biggest and well-known figures from the ancient world and all of human history. Of course, millions of people today worship Jesus as God. However, some critics have argued that Jesus never claimed to be God in the first place, and that Jesus' divinity was a concept added on by later generations of people who are wanting to create a new religion. Yet there is clear evidence in the Bible that Jesus did claim to be God. So in this episode, we are going to look at biblical evidence showing that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man, all of which are titles that are associated with divinity. So I hope you'll stick around to find out exactly how and in what ways Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we are going to be talking about Jesus' self-understanding. You know, as you know, uh, some people have argued that uh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, So they think that maybe this was an addition, you know, just kind of a legendary addition to the accounts of Jesus' life uh, that was added later on by uh, early Christians who were just trying to create a a new religion or something like that. And today I wanted to show you some biblical evidence showing that Jesus literally, directly, and indirectly claimed to be God. In our last episode, I introduced you to this Bible passage, which is a great one uh, for this. It's a great introduction to this topic of Jesus claiming to be God. It comes from John 8, verses 56 through 59. Here Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Uh, So, yeah, you know, in this passage, uh, Jesus was talking to the Jews and Pharisees in the temple in Jerusalem, right? Uh, They were basically questioning his authority, and they were having a heated back-and-forth conversation. So, uh, earlier in the passage, uh, in verses 42 and 51, uh, Jesus told them that he was sent from God, and anyone who believed his words would never die. Well, they responded by saying that he he probably had a demon because Abraham and all their greatest prophets all died. In this passage, you know, Jesus is is responding to that and saying that Abraham looked forward to and rejoiced in Jesus' arrival. And, you know, this has to do, uh, he's, he's kind of referring to when God made a covenant with Abraham and told Abraham that his offspring would eventually bless all nations. Uh, well, it, it seems like the Pharisees aren't, necessarily understanding what Jesus is getting at because the first thing that comes to their minds is that Abraham, uh, you know, for Abraham to have rejoiced in Jesus, Jesus would need to be hundreds of years old to to have been alive back then. So it doesn't seem like they're understanding that Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of those covenants and prophecies from the Old Testament. 
But this is where Jesus' response, uh, especially you know, in verse 58, is just amazing and, and why it's so relevant to what we're talking about today. So Jesus tells them that he existed before Abraham, right, uh, in verse 58. But uh, he, because he, he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he's not just saying that he existed before Abraham. He's making a reference to how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, And I mentioned this in the last lecture. But Moses asked God what his name was, and God replied, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's in Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 14. So Jesus isn't just saying, I existed before Abraham. He's saying it in a way that's, that's... He's basically claiming to be the God who revealed himself to Moses. He says, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you don't believe me, you can believe the response that the Jews had, you know, because it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. The thing is, there were a lot of crazy people back then. I mean, just as many as there would be today, I'm sure. But it wasn't a stonable offense to be a crazy person. But it was a stonable offense to claim to be God, right? And, um, you know, if they just thought he was crazy, that's fine. But you can see by their response that he is claiming to be God because they picked up stones to stone him to death. So um, this is a very uh, powerful passage that shows, uh, just one of the many, that shows that Jesus was claiming to be divine. And it wasn't something that was made up later on. And, you know, and you can maybe applying what we talked about in the last lecture, you can tell since the Gospel of John. Well, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I just want to mention this uh, in case I forget. The Gospel of John was written a little bit later. But other other things that we'll be looking at today come from other Gospels that were written a lot earlier. And if you remember, this is at a time when they were writing and challenging people to go talk to people who saw Jesus but also at a time that's too early, we think, for, for legend to have crept in. Uh, but anyways, having talked about that passage, uh, let me um, read these uh, questions for a reflection so you can be thinking about these as we go through our material. And then we can get started on talking about Jesus' self-understanding. So <clears throat> I've got a few questions for reflection for you. The first one is, were the Jews expecting the coming Messiah to perform many healings and exorcisms? Second one is, if Jesus was merely a good moral teacher, what do we make of his claims to be equal with God? And the third one is, do you think that God would permit a liar to heal and exercise demons in his name? Okay. Okay, so the three things that were, the three main things I want to emphasize in this lecture are uh, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and that Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. Okay, all three of these are very important. Up front, it might—I mean, except for maybe number two. Up front, these three might not be obvious that he's claiming to be God when he claims to be these things, and that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about what each title means and why it is associated with divinity, and then we're going to be looking at a lot of what we're going to be looking at is examples of when Jesus calls himself these things. So like I mentioned, the first thing we're going to look at is Jesus calling himself the Messiah. Now, 
in the first century, there was a Jewish messianic expectation, right? Now, the word Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, okay? The Jews thought that a Messiah or anointed one would come who would be a descendant of David, become king over Israel and the nations, and act as a spiritual shepherd for Israel. And the New Testament shows that Jesus believed himself to be this expected Messiah. One passage, for example, is, uh, this is a direct claim from Jesus to Messiahship, is found in Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. Um, this says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. So this is a great passage showing that Jesus uh, understood himself to be the Messiah. Uh, in, in other passages, just so you know, if someone says something wrong about him, he directly rebukes them. If he wasn't the Messiah, Jesus would have rebuked uh, Peter right then and there and told him, you know, you're you're wrong. But he didn't. He Instead, he told them, okay, right now I don't want everyone to know, uh, but you're right, but don't tell anybody just yet. <laughs> uh, in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6, it says, Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Now that passage from Mark was pretty straightforward. Here in Matthew 11, it might not be apparent that Jesus is referring to himself as the Messiah. Okay, and let me show you some uh, some reasons why we think this is an indicator that he's pointing himself to be the Messiah. Now, first of all, right, um, John asks him, uh, he, he sent his, his, his uh, disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Now, John is asking Jesus, are you the Messiah, basically, right? This goes back to John's preaching in the wilderness in Matthew 3. So John preaches, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You can find that in Matthew 3. You can find it in Mark 1 and John 1. John the Baptist said, There's coming someone coming after him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he uh, recognized Jesus to be this coming one at Jesus' baptism. You can see that in Matthew three fourteen. So, so uh, in this passage in Mark eleven, John is telling told his disciples to ask Jesus if he is this coming one, this Messiah. And Jesus, you know, Jesus doesn't say yes, I am the Messiah. Instead, he gives this longer answer that seems almost like a riddle. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with lepers hear cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Um, now, it, so that might not be apparent, but the thing is, Jesus is making a reference to 
a handful of passages in the prophetic book of Isaiah, okay? And a lot of the and all of these passages are known to be messianic prophecies, okay? And Jesus is telling him, I am fulfilling these things right now. So yes, I am the coming one. You know, John was uh, uh, didn't understand what was happening. We'll talk about this uh, later on, but uh, Jesus' response is is making references to a bunch of passages in Isaiah that are known to be messianic prophecies, right? So Jesus said, Jesus told him that he's giving sight to the blind. Um, I don't have these listed in my slides, um, but um, Isaiah chapter thirty-five, verses five through six says, "Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy." Uh, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Araba. Um, so you see in that passage, you know, it's talking about giving sight to the blind. It's talking about helping the lame walk. Uh, Jesus talks about raising the dead. In, in Isaiah 26, uh, verse 19, it says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the to the departed spirits. Uh, and Jesus said he was preaching to the poor. In Isaiah 61, it says, and this is really important. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to the prisoners. You can see why these are thought to be messianic uh passages especially uh in chapter 61 says the lord has anointed me right and he's uh he's giving freedom to the prisoners and preaching to the poor so that's why matthew 11 verses 2 through 6 is more evidence that jesus was claiming to be the messiah who was going to come back and um free everyone and raise the dead (laughs) um and you know uh, obviously, uh, just a regular person couldn't do these things. Another thing I wanted to talk about is Jesus' triumphal entry uh, that you can find in, in, in several of the Gospels, but I was going to emphasize uh, Mark 11, 1 through 11. It's a bit to read, but hang in there with me, and I'll show you how uh, Jesus... So this is another indirect thing. It's not Jesus straight up saying, I am the Messiah, but the way he was acting, I'll show you this this passage in Mark 11 shows that he understood himself to be the, the, the prophesied coming Messiah talked about in the Old Testament. So Mark 11, 1 through 11 says, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, 
He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So, again, it's probably not apparent why this is a messianic passage. Or why this is a passage showing that Jesus understood himself to be the Messiah. Uh, but there's several reasons why we think that this is Jesus acting in a way, showing everyone that he is the prophesied Messiah. Okay? First of all, I'd like to note that it's obvious that Jesus premeditated all this. It wasn't just a coincidence. He specifically planned and told his apostles to go get him a cult and bring it to him so he could ride into Jerusalem on it. And the significance of him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, comes uh, from uh, there's a peaceful king prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Okay, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So whether or not Jesus' followers and everyone in the crowd understood the specific significance of Jesus' actions, they, um, you know, they might not have understood the significance of him coming on a cult, but it's obvious that he did premeditate that. And um, you know, there is this peaceful king, this messianic figure prophesied in 9-9, saying that uh, Israel's king would, would appear to them riding to them on a donkey, right? Um, you know, so maybe they understood that, maybe they didn't. But there's, there's, uh, the way the crowd was acting shows that whether or not they understood what the significance of the cult was, they still thought that Jesus was the coming Messiah themselves. Uh, this comes if you look at, at uh, Old Testament passages like Second uh, Kings 9. So if you notice in that passage, they laid leafy coats and leafy branches in the road, right? Well, this, this half, let's see, what was it? It was, it was branches in, in this passage. It, it wasn't coats. But in the Old Testament, you see that uh, people uh, placed coats and leafy branches uh, to arrive the uh, coming king. So in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, it says, They said, It is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus he said to me, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each uh, man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. Right? So in this uh, Second Kings passage, it shows, uh, so this is where uh, Jehu was made king over Israel by God. And uh, one of Elisha's prophets was sent to give him the news. And uh, when the rest of Joram's captains heard the news, they placed their garments under his feet and proclaimed that he was the new king. So it's just, uh, it's just showing that this was a thing they did. It was branches, it was coats. They placed it underneath a king to signal the, the king's arrival. Also, um, the words of the crowd, right? Uh, the words they were shouting show they thought he was the Messiah. Their words actually come from a messianic psalm. Uh, psalm 118, 25 through 26 says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the in the you know in their words this isn't this isn't in Psalm one eighteen but you know when the crowd is is yelling um, Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord uh, Hosanna in the highest uh, if you didn't know Hosanna literally means give salvation now 
but at the time it had be, it had switched and become a term of praise. But I've always thought that was such an interesting and, and, and great word to yell at Jesus, right? But anyways, the word literally means give salvation, right? And it's a term of praise. So you, you can see by the, the crowd's actions and by the crowd's words that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And also Jesus, uh, the way he planned it all and the way he appeared, he understood, he understood himself to be the Messiah, regardless of whether the crowd understood what was happening with the donkey or not. So those are some direct ways that he claimed to be the Messiah, some indirect ways he claimed to be the Messiah. And, um, and that was thought to be a divine figure. Now, Son of God is another thing that uh, Jesus claims to be. I do want to emphasize to you that son of that to be a son of God wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't necessarily mean divinity, uh, but but hear me out. So um, there's several passages like Second Samuel 17, First Chronicles 17, Psalms 2, Psalms 86, uh, excuse me, Psalm 89 that show that Jewish kings were called God's sons. So we see several examples in the Old Testament where king, the Jewish kings were called God's sons. So just because you were a son of God didn't necessarily mean you were divine. Also, righteous men uh, in Jewish literature were characterized as children of God. But, but here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't just claim to be a son of God. He referred to himself as the son of God. And that's what I wanted to show you uh, and why that's significant, okay? Uh, one, one example is found in Mark 12. So this is Jesus uh, speaking in parables. Uh, Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And again, this is a lot to read, but um, it, it's, it's just kind of necessary to make our point. So uh, I'm just going to read the whole, the whole passage, 1 through 12 in Mark, 1, uh, Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Uh, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Okay, so um, now, again, maybe it's not clear that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God in this passage. Uh, but, you know, Jesus explains his parables in a few places, and this is one that we understand that he is claiming to be the Son of God, right? Now, we, we don't think that the uh, chief priests and scribes, maybe they didn't fully understand what, what uh, Jesus was saying, uh, 
but it, it seems like they understood it to an extent. Uh, but it is clear that Jesus, Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, and I'll, and I'll show you why. So, um, one one thing to look at is uh, back again in the um, book of Isaiah. In Isaiah five, and this is what this is what Jesus was referring to. This is why we know he was claiming to be the 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 son of the owner. So in Isaiah five one through seven, we see that the owner is God. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders, and the servants are prophets sent by God. The tenants beat and reject the owner's servants. Uh, finally, the owner decides that he has one left to send his only beloved son. Right. Uh, so let me. Uh, Let's see, do I have a slide for that? I don't. Okay. So let me just read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 really quickly. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So you can see between what is written in Isaiah um, and what Jesus is talking about in his parable, God the Father is the owner of the vineyard. Jerusalem is the vineyard, uh, and or at least the, the the religious leaders are the the uh, tenants of the vineyard, and they are killing and beating the prophets that God sends. But Jesus is saying that He is the last one, God's one and only Son, the Son of God. So He's the Son of God, not just a Son of God, right? Um. Another example of Jesus claiming to be uh, the Son of God is uh, found in Matthew eleven twenty five through twenty seven. This passage is also paralleled in Luke uh, ten twenty two, but this passage says, "At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father." No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So in this passage, when Jesus says no, I, I want you to, to realize this and to note this. When Jesus says no in this, in this um, passage, so you see he says no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Uh, this is, um, in the New Testament, it's written as the Greek word epikinosko. Okay, yeah, it's the Greek word uh, epikinosko. It, but it doesn't just mean no. Um, the it, it obviously it it does mean no, but it it involves this intimate and really full acquaintance, uh, someone that you knew very deeply, and um, 
And yeah, Jesus here in these verses is saying that he is this exclusive son of God who is the only revelation of God, the Father, to mankind. So this is just another example where Jesus is not only claiming to be a son of God, but the son of God, right? Um, and then the last one I wanted to show you for son of God comes from Mark 13. Uh, here it says, now uh, this is Jesus again. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father of alone. So, here, and also from what we've already seen, since Jesus claims to be the Son of God, um, in this passage, he's telling his, uh, his followers, uh, not only referring to himself as the Son of God, but also he's uh, referring to himself as the Son. Uh, yeah, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. So uh, you know that when he's talking about this, he's talking about himself as the Son of God. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and this is another difficult passage uh, that you have to deal with in theology. Um, how is it that if Jesus is God, that he doesn't know the time that the, the, he's returning? Uh, but anyways, uh, it's just another passage showing that Jesus thinks of himself as the Son of God. Okay, now, um, maybe one of the most telling is uh, there was there was definitely, you know, to be a son of God, obviously, to be the Son of God um, might not be clear is how that is divine. Uh, but it definitely does have this, this relationship with God. And also, you know, uh, Jesus, we already saw him claiming to exist before Abraham, right? But also this, this messianic figure was thought to be a divine king. Uh, but the most, I think, the most telling is Jesus calling himself the son of man. And I've read that, that um, this title is used of Jesus over 80 times in the Gospels. He, he, it was one of his favorite things he liked to call himself. Now, uh, some critics have argued that he was just calling himself the Son of Man, and all that meant was that he was human. Um, however, just like with Son of God, he wasn't just saying he was Son of God. He was saying these, a Son of God. He was saying he was the Son of God. So also, he wasn't just saying he was a son of man. He was claiming to be the son of man. And uh, it's really important to understand uh, why this, this is a claim to divinity, which I'll show you here in a second. But, ju but just really quickly, let me show you how um, there's actually, there's, I mean, there's, like I said, there's, this title is used, like, I think over 80 times in the Gospels. Interestingly enough, it's only used once outside the Gospels and Acts. Uh, so we don't think this is something that uh, the early church made up later on. It was definitely usually just something that people reported that Jesus said in the, in the Gospels. But yeah, you can see him, um, you know, in the, in the Gospels, and this is something we'll discuss later on. In, in ancient writings, they didn't have quotation marks. And so when you were talking about someone... Uh, maybe you were giving the exact words of that person, but it was acceptable to paraphrase people all the time. 
um, we can see that even though he's not calling himself the Son of Man in all the Gospels in all the same places, we we think that it's used interchangeably. I mean, he just called himself the Son of Man all the time. Uh, you can see this. It's, I thought it's interesting. And, and another thing about this showing this is that he understood himself to be the Son of Man. If you just read uh, Luke 6, verse 22, that, that passage says, Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you, uh, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. It might not be clear that he's talking about himself, but if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 5, you see it says, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say, every kind of evil against you because of me. So this is, uh, besides him besides him calling himself directly the Son of Man, there's a lot of other instances where we think he was calling himself that, but maybe, uh, you know, in one passage it looks like maybe he's talking about somebody else, but it's clear that he said that, that they paraphrased him and saying me when it was, he was saying the Son of Man in the other passage. So we know that he thought of himself as the Son of Man. Um, another instance in, in Mark eight, verse 27, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Parallel passage in Matthew 16, verse 13 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So we, we, we think that, uh, you know, that's he called himself the Son of Man all the time. And that's just another instance where he was calling himself the Son of Man, understanding it to be him who he's referring to. Uh, but but why is this important? It's important because there was there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter seven that points to this divine figure. So let me read this to you. It's in it's in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. It says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And why is this significant? Well, it's significant for several reasons. So, for one... Uh, I've read that the words one like a son of man indicate that the figure in the passage was in human form. So when Daniel s described it one like a son of man, Daniel's describing that this figure uh, coming with the clouds was in human form. Uh, but the thing is, clouds in, uh, in the ancient world were often associated with deity. So it's this weird passage in the Old Testament where it looks like the figure in the passage is in human form, but also associated with deity somehow. Um, also, the Aramaic word translated serve in verse 14, because um, uh, you can see it, you see that in verse 14, it says, so that, uh, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. Well, in different translations, you'll see this that word serve translated into different things. Um, here I've got serve, but in, what is it? I think it's in the in the NIV, um, the New International Version, translate that, that word as worship. And it's because that Aramaic word, uh, it meant serve. It means more than just to serve. It, it's supposed to mean serve, revere, or worship. So, uh, you know, 
I mean, usually these, you know, these words only have one meaning, but the word could mean all those, but it's, but you know, they have more than one word for these things. And it's interesting to use that word because it could mean those revere, worship, serve. So there's, there's, it's significant. Not only does this look like some kind of human divine figure, but also he's, he's arriving and all peoples will serve him, uh, worship him. Um, so this this son of man is when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's not just saying he's a human. He's saying he is the son of man prophesied in, in Daniel chapter seven there. So that's why it's so significant, you know, and when you and when you take all these things, it's just amazing. Let me um, let me show you one more example here in Mark 13. So Mark 13 verses 26 through 27, it says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And you see Jesus saying this in, in other places as well, talking about how he will come in the clouds. People will see the Son of Man coming. You can see that he he understood when he called himself the Son of Man, he meant the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7. He was this Son of Man who's going to come in the clouds with great power and glory. He was this human divine figure who was going to, uh, you know, gather his people from all nations and they would serve him. So this really is a culmination of all these uh, concepts, this, this son of God, the Messiah and the son of man. And I'm telling you, it, it, it to me, I mean, it's it's obvious. And they, they often tried to stone him for saying these things they often tried to kill him because he was claiming to be on par with god and it, it we'll talk about this later but i just think this creates huge problems for people who want to say that jesus was this good moral teacher because regardless of his moral teachings he was claiming to be god so you know you either have to say he's, he's a crazy person or he was lying i mean how could you be a good moral teacher and also say that you're god when you're not so we'll be talking about this later on, but it is um, it is it is apparent that Jesus understood himself to be God on par with God uh, in so many ways. Like I've just shown you, either directly or indirectly, he acted like it. He said it. He said things that indicated it. So it, it really is absurd to me to hear people say that he didn't claim to be God. It's apparent right there in the eyewitness testimony about his life. So. Um, so that's that's what we we're going to talk about for today. In the uh, next lecture, we are going to be talking about the synoptic problem. Like I said, the synoptic problem uh, is more about the sources that were used in writing the Gospels. But out of that study came a lot of emphasis on discrepancies in the Gospels. So really, um, that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, looking at passages that seem to be contradicting each other in the Gospels, but showing how they don't really ultimately contradict each other. So we're going to look at that next time, and I'm excited to talk to you about that. But really quickly, to remind you of our questions for reflection, here they were. There were three of them. First one was, were the Jews expecting the coming Messiah to perform many healings and exorcisms? Two, if Jesus was merely a good moral teacher, what do we make of his claims to be equal with God? And three, do you think that God would permit a liar to heal and exorcise demons in his name? <laughs> you know, um, no one claims that... Uh, you know, we saw Jesus said that God allows him to do these things in the Old Testament. You know, God allowed uh, prophets to do 
all sorts of miracles, but no one ever understood it to be those those miracles being a power that the prophets had. I'm sorry, I'm answering this question for you, but uh, the Old Testament prophets didn't have the powers. You know, no one thinks that Moses had the power to split the the Red Sea. Moses was just telling people what would happen, and then it happened because God was making it happen. Well, if if someone's a liar and a cheat, God's not going to endorse that. So, anyways, uh, again, here's our Charles Colson quote that I really enjoy from Faith on the Line, Dare to Make a Kingdom Difference. He says, The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything else we believe. By his resurrection, Jesus proves he is who he says he is. Be confident in this truth. Stand on the holy word of God. Don't sell the world a false bill of goods. Preach the word. Defend the faith. Live the faith. So that's it for this uh, episode and this lecture. Um, I wanted to uh, just quickly emphasize Southern Evangelical Seminary again. Um, Southern Evangelical Seminary is a uh, non-denominational seminary and Bible college. Evangelical Christian, very conservative. They place an emphasis on apologetics and philosophy and theology. You can get just certain, if you're interested in all these topics we're talking about, this is where I learned most of this stuff. <laughs> and uh, if you want to dive even deeper, I highly recommend uh, you go there. You know, you can get a master degree in apologetics, but even some of these, like their master of divinity, which is the degree you get to become a pastor, right? Master of divinity, you can major in apologetics if you want to. So you learn to be a pastor while also learning apologetics. Uh, you can get a PhD in philosophy of religion. You can get a, a, a bachelor's degree, you can, or you can just get a certificate in apologetics, which is not as in-depth, but still you get to go deeper, right? Uh, SES has, uh, they, they offer classes online, in person, there in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. So uh, it's, a, it's a great school. Uh, it, it's not in Charlotte, but it's, it's, it's near there. Uh, but it's a great school. I highly recommend it. And I also wanted to recommend to you uh, Kingdom Preparatory Academy, which is a classical Christian school in Lubbock, Texas. That's where my kids go. This is the school where I taught this, uh, taught a class on Christian apologetics, where I uh, put together these. Um, a lot of the material that I'm using in this series comes from the um, uh, the notes and the presentations I made for that class. So, uh, but anyways, um, Kingdom Preparatory Academy is a great. Uh, classical Christian school. Uh, they go all the way from pre-K to 12th grade. Uh, it's here in Lubbock, Texas. If you're looking for an alternative um, Christian classical education here in the Lubbock area, I highly recommend it. Their website is kingdomprep.org if you want to check them out. Um, thank you so much for uh, being here, and I look forward to our next lecture on the synoptic problem. Have a great day.